This podcast contains graphic content and is meant for mature listeners only. Nineteen-year-old Abby Rudolph is thin, with long blonde hair and a ponytail. A pretty girl who looks like an all-American high school cheerleader as she turns side to side to have her picture taken. But this is not a yearbook photo shoot. It's the Clay County, Minnesota jail on October 30th, 2016. And Abby is being booked. Mugshot, fingerprints, nice-looking clothes exchanged for an orange jumpsuit. Abby's not exactly a hardened criminal. She's at the jail, accused of attempting to shoplift a toaster from a big-box hardware store. Four days later... I'm sorry for your loss, um, but right, right now we're investigating the death of Abby. I'm A.J. Legault, an investigative reporter in Minnesota. You're listening to Cruel and Unusual, Episode 4, Don't Leave Me In Here. Full disclosure, this story, Abby's story, haunts me. The video of what happens to this girl is something you can't unsee. And in our reporting process, I've watched it too many times to count. Over the first three episodes of this investigative series, we've dived into mysterious and seemingly preventable deaths at one jail in Beltrami County. Those deaths involved allegations and, as we uncovered, strong evidence that delayed and denied medical care played a huge role in unnecessary loss of lives. As we soon uncover, that's a deadly pattern, playing out all too often in jails across the state. Quick geography reference. Clay County is in the far northwest region of Minnesota, just across the state line from the city of Fargo, North Dakota. On November 3rd, 2016, Abby Rudolph's mom, Jill, returns a missed call from Clay County Detective John Burkle that sends the family spiraling. She became ill today while she was in the jail, and an ambulance was called, and um, and uh, the ambulance was able unable to uh, resuscitate her, and um, she passed away this afternoon um, at about... Uh, 2.50 p.m. Jack Rudolph is Abby's little brother. I mean, it's always in the back of my head. I know it's in the back of my sister's head. Um, there's not a day I go by when I don't think about her. You know, she was really my best friend. Jack says he idolized his big sister. Like I said, she was my best friend. I loved being with her. Since I was younger, I kind of looked up to her. I always wanted to hang out with her and um, just be anywhere she was. For the life of me, I could not believe that she was gone from my life. Um, I, I remember, like, how... I remember thinking to myself, how is this going to... Um, how is the rest of my life going to be without her, you know, with the family? It, it would just never be the same. And... It was, it was a really hard time. Her family was desperate for answers about what killed Abby and waited anxiously for the medical examiner's report. When the autopsy results came back, 
it showed she died of natural causes, acute bronchopneumonia. There were two separate investigations done, one by the Clay County Sheriff's Department and another death review by the Minnesota Department of Corrections. The DOC licenses jails in the state and is tasked with making sure nothing improper happened whenever there's a critical incident like a death behind bars. To read the official versions, Abby's was a tragic but unpreventable death. Both of these investigations found jail staff were very compassionate and treated Miss Rudolph very professionally. Is that accurate? You know, I, I can't speak to how they could have possibly arrived at that conclusion, but I think anybody looking at the objective facts of this case uh, certainly would not agree with that type of a characterization. What happened here was unacceptable, and um, there were failures all along the way. This is Colin Peterson. Colin is an attorney representing Abby's family in a federal lawsuit against the Clay County Jail and Men Correctional Care. In that lawsuit, Peterson claimed Abby was denied her constitutional right to receive adequate medical care while incarcerated. Was this young girl's death preventable? You know, that's the question that needs to be asked in any one of these cases, and it's the question that uh, Abby Rudolph's family came to us with. To answer that, we had to go out and consult with experts, and the jury is going to hear from all of those experts. And I think that after they hear all the evidence, the answer is going to be clear, and that is that Abby Rudolph should still be alive today. There were simple medical interventions that could have been done. A lot of lawsuits get filed against jails. Most make a lot of allegations. And most of these lawsuits come to nothing and ultimately get dismissed. On the other hand, as we've detailed in prior episodes, we've discovered the official version of these jailhouse death investigations can also leave a lot of damning facts out. Sometimes burying the truth of what really happened. Just like with Hardell Sherrill and Bruce Lundmark, we decided to do our own investigation to see what we could find out about how and why Abby died. In this case, Abby herself left clues. So made me be alone in a locked room with puka over me. That's Abby. In a recorded conversation with her mom, Jill, who visited her at the jail two days before she died, the teenager was worried she reeked so badly that her mom could smell her through the glass partition. Oh, smell me. I stink so bad right now. I want to be home with you right now. I love you with all my heart, Abby. You're my daughter. And then I want to come home with you. Abby begs her mom to bail her out, but the family is going through financial difficulties. Jill tells her daughter that she can't afford to post her bail. I don't have any money, honey. I can't help you. I'm sorry. Don't leave me in here. The conversation goes on like this. They talk about what Abby's arrest is doing to her little brother, Jack, the young boy who worships the ground she walks on. It's hard for Jack right now. Yeah. He's so worried about you. Jill is clearly worried, too. You're sick. I want to take care of you. I love you, baby girl. I love you, too. It's the last mother and daughter talk Jill and Abby ever have. Abby's self-description of being sick, covered in puke, stinking, 
seems to directly conflict with that compassionate and professional care the official investigations claimed Clay County provided. Our investigation, using jailhouse video, along with court, jail, and medical records, reveals an agonizing tale. The teen girl literally vomited to death. Abby lost more than 17 pounds, nearly 13% of her body weight, in those four days she was locked up. Not once during her time at the Clay County Jail was she provided medicine or a doctor's care. These are facts that haunt Abby's little brother, Jack. No one deserves to die like that so young and on a cold concrete floor is gut-wrenching for me. It was the worst imagination, the worst thought to know that happened to my sister, who I grew up with, who I love. It was just the worst thing to think about. You know, it was... It was terrible. It's traumatizing. Um, It's still the worst thing that I've ever had to learn this to this day. That's something no one should ever have to think about or know that happened to one of their family members. The root cause of what led to Abby being in jail started a few years earlier, when even the idea she would consider shoplifting would have been met with disbelief by her family. She was a great person. Um, Everyone loved her. I remember hanging out with her friends. She would bring her friends over as I was a kid. Um, They were a bit older than me, but they were, everyone liked her. She was just the person who walked in the room and everyone wanted to get to know her, you know? Um, And that was before the using. After the using, she was kind of, um, just in her own world. Jack says his sister broke her hip in high school, became hooked on pain medication, and then heroin. All of her childhood friends, she didn't really hang out with them anymore. Deep down, she was a normal person, and she just got into the wrong crowd with the wrong people. And all that stuff is addicting, unfortunately. I believe it could happen to, to anyone. What can happen to one person can happen to any person. Abby's mom spent a lot of money sending her to rehab, but she relapsed. Her family believes that's why she was attempting to shoplift the toaster, to feed that habit she had yet to break. Abby and her mom discussed her drug use in that recorded jail conversation days before her death. I can make good decisions. I know you can when you're sober. Yeah. And I can be sober. Abby's spiraling health situation at the jail was so obvious, even the other women she was locked up with could see it and were concerned enough to raise a warning. On October 31st, a day after being booked into the Clay County Jail, a group of women locked up with Abby passed a note to a guard warning the teenager was withdrawing from heroin. The note said, Abby was too weak to stand and hadn't eaten or drank anything. The note says, quote, all of us in the female block feels she needs to be monitored for her own safety, end quote. Two days later, on November 1st, Abby was finally drug tested. The results show she had a potent cocktail of narcotics, including heroin, in her system. The National Commission on Correctional Healthcare, or NCHC, is considered the gold standard the source 
for how medical care behind bars is supposed to be administered. The NCHC's Opioid Detoxification Guidelines warn, acute opioid withdrawal is common upon entry into correctional facilities and untreated may result in needless suffering, interruption of life-sustaining medical treatments, and rarely death. And it adds, quote, withdrawal should be treated with effective medication, end quote. Are withdrawal deaths in jail needless? By and large, yes. Treatment can prevent these deaths. Dr. Kevin Fischella is an addiction specialist. He also serves on the board of the National Commission on Correctional Healthcare. Obviously, jails are less equipped than hospitals to do this, but if they have appropriate uh, protocols in place, uh, these deaths should be uh, basically non-existent. Knowing that, what happens to Abby inside the Clay County Jail seems inexplicable and inexcusable because she was vomiting all over her cell. On November 1st, Abby was put on a medical watch, moved to a high-risk cell with 24-hour video monitoring. Guards were required to check on her every 15 minutes and record her condition on what are known as seclusion sheets. The top of Abby's seclusion sheets clearly state she's detoxing from heroin. While the video shows Abby spends the next 42 hours vomiting over and over and over, soiling herself with diarrhea again and again and again, the 15-minute check notes by the guards consistently list her condition as okay. Here's an example. On November 1st at 7.58 p.m., Video shows Abby lying on the floor, getting sick. But two minutes later, at 8 o'clock, the records show a guard marks her okay. An hour later, between 8.58 and 8.59, video shows her vomiting. But at 9 p.m., on the sheet, she's marked okay by a guard. I can't fathom how anyone could uh, reach that conclusion. She certainly wasn't okay. This is attorney Colin Peterson again. She is vomiting. She has to put her bed um, near the toilet because she's vomiting so frequently. Um, she's vomiting into bags. There's, um, there's diarrhea. There's a whole host of symptoms that are all very clearly um, known to everyone in the jail. And for some reason, uh, they're not getting documented and they arrive at the conclusion that she's okay when certainly that wasn't the case. And it seems uh, from the video footage that there were actually people that were checking on her. Uh, the failures really came from the fact that even though these symptoms were being observed, they weren't being documented. And because they weren't being documented, they weren't being shared with the necessary people who were supposed to be making medical decisions on Abby's behalf. So obviously, without the necessary information, the right decisions can't be made. And that's the critical breakdown that happened in this case. Only once at 2 a.m. on November 3rd does a guard hint at how sick Abby is. Writing on the seclusion sheet, quote, gave water, new vomit bag, end quote. She just became progressively sicker and sicker and sicker, and nobody did anything about it, and eventually her body couldn't withstand it, and she, she unfortunately passed away. By now, if you're like me, you've got to be asking yourself, this went on for days. Where is the jail medical staff throughout all this? Men Correctional Care 
if you've listened to the other episodes of this podcast, you're familiar with that name. End men now! End men now! Mend is the private jail medical company in charge of inmates' health at the Beltrami County Jail and is accused of negligent care, resulting in Hardell Sherrill and Bruce Lundmark's deaths. Mend also has the contract with Clay County and dozens of other jails across Minnesota and the upper Midwest and has been the target of numerous protests led by Hardell's mom, Delshia Perry. Mend Medical is responsible for about 30-plus Agencies that are supposedly uh, giving medical care to 30-some county jails. The Clay County Men Jail Nurse claims in depositions for the federal lawsuit Abby's family filed that she had no idea Abby was vomiting continuously because the jail guards did not note it, never writing it down on the seclusion sheets. However, medical notes do show The men nurse saw Abby on November 2nd, and Abby reported being sick to her stomach. The nurse wrote that Abby was, and I'm quoting here, encouraged to use toilet in cell instead of being incontinent on floor. Inmate states she did not realize what she was doing, end quote. Despite being so sick while in known heroin withdrawal, that she was going to the bathroom on her cell floor and didn't even seem to know it, no doctor was consulted. No medication was provided. It's the exact opposite of what Dr. Fisella tells us should happen. The exact opposite of all national standards for medical care behind bars. If somebody's in severe withdrawal, they they either should be in a hospital or in a hospital-like setting. In other words, with, with very careful nursing and uh, you know, uh, uh, clinician supervision. In the early morning hours of November 3rd, Abby's vomiting continued. A review of jail video shows she used a vomit bag eight times between midnight and 7 a.m. A steady stream of guards walks in and out of her cell that morning bringing her new Dixie cups and replacing her vomit bag as she gets worse. By noon, a guard noticed Abby had a catatonic look on her face, just gazing at the wall. The guard noted that he thought she seemed out of it. Still, it would be nearly two hours before a guard asked the nurse whether Abby was on medication for her withdrawals. This seems to indicate that even the guards knew when someone's going through withdrawal like this, that they should be given medicine. Abby has been given nothing but Gatorade and water. Before calling Todd Leonard, the jail doctor who owns men correctional care, to see about prescribing something to help the obviously sick teenage girl, the nurse and a guard took Abby to the shower. She needed help walking there, and once inside, could no longer stand. Abby's body began to jerk, and she appeared to be having a seizure. Paramedics were called and quickly arrived. They wheeled her on a gurney outside and put her in the back of an ambulance. But they never made it out of the jail parking lot. She stopped breathing. As paramedics tried to save her life, Abby again vomited, then died. 
cue that call we told you about at the beginning of this episode between the Clay County detective and Abby's mom. I'm sorry for your loss. Um, but right right now we're in investigating um, the, the death of, of Abby. Jill immediately questions why her daughter did not receive medical treatment. She was sick and I want to help her. She, she was sick and she became sick in the jail and, and, and they were unable to, uh, she, her condition deteriorated to the point where um, they were unable to why? revive her. Why wasn't someone called? Why wasn't the help called earlier? Well, they did. They called right away. Um, you said that you just stated that she, her condition deteriorated. So why wasn't someone called? I was there the other day, and she was sick as could be. The phone call goes on like this. She was having diarrhea. She looked horrible. Okay. Did, did she tell you at that time how long that had been going on? No, she's been there since Sunday, so I'm suspecting that I had been, you know, and everything that I've read, I'm suspecting that it was starting, but she stated that she, I asked if there was a nurse or some someone, and she said that she was just by herself somewhere. <laughs> Okay. As we told you earlier, an autopsy was done, and the medical examiner concluded Abby died of natural causes, just listing bronchopneumonia. It wasn't until the family filed the federal wrongful death lawsuit and received Abby's full medical records from the jail and medical examiner's office that they learned more about what really happened. It turns out the Centers for Disease Control was consulted. The CDC did a pathology report. That CDC report states the bronchopneumonia was due to aspiration. I asked Dr. Fisella what that means. Yeah, in layman's terms, what does acute bronchopneumonia with aspiration mean? That means somebody has uh, is vomiting, and as they're vomiting and coughing, the, the vomit goes down their windpipe, gets into their lungs, and uh, 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 causes uh, a reaction and inflammation in the lungs that sets up, again, uh, bacterial infection. As part of the Rudolph family's lawsuit, their attorney sent the medical files to an additional pathologist for review. That pathologist concluded Abby's untreated drug withdrawal caused the vomiting, which caused the pneumonia, and her seizure in the shower likely resulted from severe untreated dehydration due to her vomiting and diarrhea. Basically, the teen girl held on just shoplifting charges because her mom couldn't afford bail, vomited to death, denied the most basic medical care that could have saved her life. Remember, none of this information can be found in the official death investigations. These flawed investigations that appear to either miss or cover up wrongdoing by jail guards and medical staff seem to be a pattern. My team and I spotted the exact same issues when we dug into the deaths of Hardell Sherrill and Bruce Lundmark. Our reporting found DOC oversight reviews when an inmate dies are flawed or toothless. You did a lot of them. So I ask, yes. why are they so lacking? Um, I don't know if I would use the word lacking. So I'm talking with Greg Croucher. He's a former Minnesota Department of Corrections inspector, now working in Colorado. He tells me something that, to this point, 
I didn't really understand, something that I find incredible. He explained that the state doesn't actually do an investigation when an incarcerated person dies in jail. They don't even interview witnesses. They just review the investigation done by the local authorities. And we would review their investigation. So we just did a review of the investigation. DOC is tasked with providing oversight of these jails. When there is a tragic incident like a death, you're saying DOC didn't investigate? Uh, DOC would not do the investigation. We would do a review of the investigation that the county had done on the incident. Think about that for a second. That means the only real investigation done when an inmate dies is by the county, usually the county sheriff. So the very agency responsible for keeping inmates alive is allowed to investigate themselves when there's a death. DOC Commissioner Paul Schnell confirmed this for us. We are not the people who investigate the death itself. Um, That gets done by law enforcement. We do a review, and generally speaking, it's following that. In Abby's case, Clay County chose to investigate itself. The finding, quote, jail staff acted appropriately and showed compassion while dealing with inmate Abby Rudolph, end quote. The DOC inspector then just parroted that in the state report, writing, quote, staff appear to have been very compassionate and treated Miss Rudolph very professionally. A far cry from what my team's investigation found, Clay County ignoring basic professional jail medical standards that people detoxing from opioids be given effective medication and guards consistently documenting Abby as okay even as she lay on her cell floor for days, vomiting and soiling herself. Here's DOC Commissioner Schnell again. Does that tell you that DOC's death investigations are not thorough enough? Yeah, that tells me that we need to make sure that there there has to be uh, a much deeper level of accountability in these cases. Is this something DOC should be spotting? Without a doubt. And I think we one of the things that we are committed to uh, is to to ultimately correct the system. In October of 2020, just weeks after we did that interview with the DOC commissioner, he placed the manager of the DOC's inspection and enforcement unit on administrative leave. That manager then quit. Because of Minnesota's employment laws, there wasn't much the commissioner would tell us about that action. The head of the jail inspection unit is no longer with DOC as of today. I can tell you that that uh, that person is no longer um, an employee of the DOC. An internal memo we obtained documented numerous concerns with the unit's oversight and thoroughness when reviewing jail deaths, specifically citing a pair of deaths we've previously told you about, Hardell Sherrill's and Bruce Lundmark's. The issue of sheriff's offices investigating themselves after deaths, however, continued. They're not working to fix problems. They're looking to cover their backsides when they're faced with civil liability. That's Jeff Storms. He's a high-profile civil rights attorney in Minnesota. He's part of the legal team that represents George Floyd's family. And he's also representing a number of families in wrongful death lawsuits against jails. He says the investigations the county sheriffs do of themselves are too often a sham. 
the investigation that is done and it's investigation in quotes is done by the county that employs all these individuals. You know, the county's concerned about its own liability. Should jail death investigations be conducted by an independent agency? Absolutely. That's that's really the fundamental question is should an agency be allowed to police itself or should there be an outside set of eyes that's looking at the case and determining what the cause of death was? Professor Michelle Deitch is a nationally recognized expert on jails who helped craft the law in Texas that requires independent investigations of jail deaths by an outside law enforcement agency, just like is done in officer-involved shootings. New Jersey and North Carolina have similar laws, and in 2015, a presidential task force recommended outside investigations be adopted nationwide. The report states, in order to restore and maintain trust, this independence is crucial. That's, that's the bottom line, is that no one should be investigating a death that occurred in their own jail. Any investigation of a death in custody needs to be done by an entity outside of the agency that might bear some responsibility for that death. Um, that's what gives it the investigation credibility, and it's how the public will come to trust in that finding. What possible problems can arise from an agency investigating a death on its own watch? Well, even if it's done with the best of intentions, the agency has a conflict of interest. I mean, it is looking at uh, something that may have been done wrong by one of its uh, staff, or maybe there's something going on with its policies. Um, but you can even take bad intentions out of it. This is really a matter of whether you see things from a single perspective or not. Sometimes it takes that outside set of eyes to see things in a new light. But in Minnesota, sheriffs get to choose who investigates jail deaths on their watch. And our investigation discovered, more often than not, they choose themselves. In Abby's case, Men Correctional Care quietly reached a secret settlement with the Rudolph family before the federal lawsuit could go to trial. Clay County paid another $150,000 to settle the case. Neither the county nor Dr. Todd Leonard the owner of MEND would comment on Abby's death beyond emailed statements that their settlements with Abby's family came with no admission of wrongdoing. I remember my mom was not the same afterwards. Abby's brother Jack says her death had a devastating impact on the family. His mom, Jill, died two years later. I believe in broken heart syndrome, yes. Once Abby died, my mom started to drink a lot more. That was kind of her escape, you know? And it's just, it's like a domino effect. In the next episode of Cruel and Unusual, a jail known for lying about how it cares for the well-being of people in its custody. So they claimed they checked on him and he actually was already hanging out. They did. Three minutes in to when Brett had the, the sheet around his neck, they said that they checked on him, and obviously they didn't. And our investigation discovers, in Minnesota jails, the percentage of deaths by suicide is double the national average. The video of the day that my son wrapped a sheet into a rope, put it around his neck, hung it over a door, and laid on the floor to take his life, 
yes, I watched that video as well. Um, I wish somebody at the jail that was paid to watch that video would have been watching it because there was ample opportunity in that facility for them to react and save Brett. I'm AJ Legault. A special thanks to our Carol Levin investigative team, producers Brandon Stahl, Steve Eckert, and Gary Knox.